So maybe a first question would be, give us a state of just your tribes. Madison has just been designated in December, Truax Field, as the home of F-35A. Doctor, can you start? Give us an overview. They are two of the 17 nerdy girls, and that's their term, not mine, who started a very popular and informative, a fascinating website called Dear Pandemic. Let's, uh, its mission, according to the website, is to educate and empower individuals to successfully navigate the COVID-19 information overwhelm. They are healthcare professionals ranging from Phoenix to Dallas to Wisconsin to Philadelphia to London. I welcome Dr. Malia Jones, who is a researcher working on infectious disease, social epidemiology, demography, and geography as an associate scientist in health geography at the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory. I also welcome Dr. Amanda Simonek, who studies, uh, a so she is a social epidemiologist who studies links between infection and chronic disease and fascinating generational pathways that cause healthcare social inequities. She is an associate professor of ep epidemiology at the UW-Milwaukee's Zilber School of Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating Wisconsin Eye Newsmakers. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having us. Well, give us a little bit of history. When did Deer Pandemic start and why? And um, did you think that women with the expertise like you have and the 17 other nerdy girls that's your turn not mine i don't want to be accused of any any but um did you think that uh women professionals were not getting the respect and being included in some of the national reporting so who's going to go first on the origin of your pandemic please malia should take, take the origin story yeah thanks for having us on um the deer pandemic really started organically and it was almost an accident. And I work in the general field of um, studying how infectious diseases spread through populations and have for many years. And as the pandemic start, really just started to get going here in the United States, I um, accidentally got a lot of attention on social media for some comments that I was making about just generally what I saw is going on to my personal network. And um, those those posts and those comments became so popular that it it kind of snowballed into a much bigger um, a much bigger enterprise, which is Dear Pandemic, and um, it started in the end of February, early March. And um, when we set out, we really didn't intend to launch a whole social media campaign, uh, but it became clear that there was a real need for that. And so uh, we're happy to be uh, still helping people navigate the, the information overwhelm here nine months in. Um, in terms of why, you know, we, we really leaned into the idea of it just being women because, um, you know, that started also kind of accidentally. The field of public health is mostly women. And so most of the people that, you know, we knew um, Amanda and I, as we reached out to our professional networks for some help 
uh, were, were women. And the more that we started to notice how often men were being quoted in the media, the more we decided to lean into that idea that uh, what's really needed here is uh, nerdy girls. Well, um, do women have different, no, let me say, do women, do women have unique um, symptoms and responses and treatment and death rates to COVID-19? Is, is that part of the reason that uh, it, there's 17 talented nerdy girls? Amanda, do you want to take that one? Yeah, so I mean, the the uh, posts that we make on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we have, you know, 40, almost 46,000 people who follow our Facebook page, um, about, I think, 6,000 on Twitter, 6,400, and nearly um, over 5,000, nearly 6,000 um, on Instagram, are not just women. And the posts that we make are not just targeted for women at all. So the advice we give, whether that's, you know, uh, do I need to, you know, how can I be safe when I go grocery shopping? Or what's the latest vaccine news? Or how can I safely uh, visit family for Thanksgiving? Or is there a safe way? This kind of uh, practical advice and curation of information about COVID-19 is for everybody. Well, um, has the site grown so popular that some uh, some talented medical professionals who happen to be men want to be added to the nerdy girls crew, the roster? We have had several guest posts. We call them nerdy guests, whether they're men or women. And so, yeah, we definitely have included um, male scientists in our networks who have, you know, weighed in on um, areas of COVID-19 information that we welcome their perspective on. Well, I have great respect And you know, for... Steve, I'll just... Please, I just want to please add to that that um, it is the case that... Um, the pandemic affects all kinds of aspects of society. And one of the things that we are seeing is that because of the, the imbalance in who takes care of children, many female scientists have left the workforce. And um, many of our public health officials have resigned. Many of those people, most of those people are women. And so we are sort of doing this in a context where we feel that women's voices need to be lifted up, particularly women's scientific voices. And so although, you know, we, we provide information for all people and we also welcome the expertise of, of all um, scientists, we want, uh, part of our mission is to lift up the voices of female scientists. I ran into a term for that, um, what you just described. And uh, the term I heard last week was a she session, not a recession, yeah. but a she session, that it's most hurting professional women who feel for childcare, for um, caring for loved ones, that, that they have to interrupt their careers. Is that kind of what you were just pointing to, doctor? Yeah, exactly. The um, the she session, this term refers to the fact that in September, as a virtual school resumed in Wisconsin and elsewhere, uh, in many parts of the country and the world, uh, we saw almost a million women leave the United States workforce. And many men also left the workforce, but it, at a ratio of about five to one, it was women. And of course, many of those women are um, scientific professionals. And this is a moment when our voices are really desperately needed to uh, help deal with the pandemic. I myself have 
kids who are virtual schooling at home and I'm very fortunate to have a partner who's also at home helping out with them but there are a lot of women who just had to walk away from their careers in order to deal with the needs of childcare. So yeah, that is what we're referring to. In addition to that, we also saw early on in the pandemic in the scientific community, journal editors were saying that they were receiving record low numbers of submissions from female scientists. And that was for the same reason that childcare needs fall mostly to women. Let me ask an overview question. What if both of you healthcare professionals, just one or two general observations learned about COVID-19 in the eight month it's been uh, killing people and making lots of millions of us sick. Well, I think we've learned a lot in the past, you know, eight or nine months. Um, you know, we've learned how this infection compares to other respiratory illnesses and what makes it unique and what makes it very easily spread, you know, compared to influenza. We've learned compared to the SARS-CoV-1 virus that circulated over a decade ago. Um, you know, we've learned that people can start spreading this infection two days before they develop symptoms, which makes it extremely tricky to try to control. Um, it really requires people to take precautions that almost they have to assume they're already infected in order to successfully um, prevent transmitting to others. Um, you know, I think we've learned a lot about what steps we can take to um, mitigate risk to, you know, prevent our own families and ourselves from um, getting COVID-19, but also spreading it to others, you know, that we have established that things like social distancing, wearing masks, um, keeping in well-ventilated spaces, uh, restricting the number of people that you uh, associate with and the time that you spend with people outside your household are the tactics that we can use to try to prevent spread of this infection. This is a good time to use a graphic from the Dear Pandemic website, your smart principles. So let's walk them down. Why don't each of you take turns? The first one is space. Dr. Malia, do you want to talk about space? Yeah, so it, um, this relates to what we've learned about the virus. Early on, one of our best strategies was social distancing, and that's kind of evolved into the the more specific recommendation that we now know that the main way the virus is transmitted is from breathing the same air as other people. And so one of our best ways, tools to, um, to reduce the amount of virus you might be inhaling from someone else is to keep your physical distance from them, to stay in sparsely um, populated places. And so, you know, keeping at least six feet distance from other people is one way to reduce your risk. Dr. Amanda, uh, the second uh, letter is mask. You want to talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah. So, you know, I think we have learned that wearing a cloth mask can help uh, provide source control. So it prevents the wearer from expelling as many droplets into the environment that they would normally. Um, I think that, you know, there's a certain level of protection that we get in when most people are wearing masks as well. The CDC has now just recently, you know, changed, updated their website that says, yes, masks provide cloth masks, you know, prevent you from spreading the infection to others. And if enough people wear them, they prevent overall transmission rates, um, you know, and so wearing a mask, if you're gonna leave your household and be out in public is really, one of the best things that we can do right now. Dr. Malia, it's your turn to talk about air. Yep, so 
Again, uh, these are layers of protection. And so the more of these that you can do at the same time, the better off you are. And air refers to the idea that um, being in a well-ventilated place or even better yet being outdoors really does reduce your risk of acquiring COVID-19. And so we recommend people have um, any interactions that they, that they need to have outdoors or in well-ventilated places. Dr. Malia, restrict, please. Oh, me again? I think it's Amanda's turn. You can take Oh, I'm sorry. Dr. Amanda, restrict. <laughs> sure. My bad. Sorry. <clears throat> so restrict means, you know, keeping the number of people that you interact with small. Ideally, we're limiting to just people in our household um, and, and otherwise a consistent sort of small bubble of people over time that we interact with. And if we are interacting with people outside of our household, again, we come back to that layering idea. We should be social distancing, wearing masks, and being outdoors with anybody that we don't already live with. And now it is your turn, Dr. Malia, for time. Time refers to the idea that the shorter the duration of your exposure to other people, the lower your risk because the, those droplets do accumulate in the air. And so if you're spending a long time with people in a poorly ventilated space without masks on, that that is really high risk for a super spreader event for a lot of people getting sick. So you should keep your interactions with other people short. What's uh, the perhaps the most common question you get at the Dear Pandemic website? And what's the toughest question that uh, you've not been able to answer because maybe the scientific jury is still out. I think the most common type of question. They might be the same. Yeah, okay. we'll okay. see what I say and then see what you are going to say, <laughs> Malia. Um, I think the most common question we get, you know, is, is X, Y, or Z safe? You know, um, can I do X? What's the risk of, you know, going uh, to a football game? What's the risk of having family over? And I think our answer to that is typically to get people to think along those lines of the SMART acronyms, you know, space, mask, air, restrict time, and to say, you know, we can't tell you that anything is 100% risk-free, but we can tell you that if you uh, think about the ways that you could maximize those five factors, space, mask, air, restrict, and time, that will reduce your risk for any activity. And the more of those things we can do and layer on, um, you may have seen this like kind of Swiss cheese acronym that's become popular where not any one of those precautions will protect you 100%. But the more of them you do, the more you sort of layer them, the the less likely that virus can sneak through any any holes in any one of those strategies. Any PS on that, Dr. Malia? I was actually, I was going to say the same thing. We get those questions you know, here's my very specific situation. Is it safe all the time? And they're very, they're really hard to answer because we can't evaluate the risk of every particular situation. And we also can't tell you that any, any activity is 100% safe in a raging pandemic. And so, you know, it's both the most common question and probably the hardest one to answer. Well, I have tremendous uh, respect for your expertise. Let me ask you this. Why has our Wisconsin's positive rate surge now twice over 7,000 per day in the last two or three days. Um, and when I go to the Axios.com site, the national dashboard, I think we're third in terms of 100,000 behind North Dakota and South Dakota. I think our uh, the Axios, and I think this uh, number is a little out of date, 4,561 positives per 100,000. 
puts us right up there with Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. So I want to come back to the question, why this significant, dramatic, and quite frankly, frightening surge in Wisconsin? Yeah, it is really a crisis situation in Wisconsin right now. The the number of positive cases we're seeing per day is um, is terrifying, and it's going to lead to an overwhelm of our hospital system and a tremendous amount of suffering and death in our state. It's it's uh, I mean, it's hard to overstate how bad it really is. And the question of why are we here? I think there's a real combination of factors, which is a, I know is a frustrating answer because it's not short, but we have seen over the last several weeks, I would say, or months even, I would say since the beginning of September, a slow increase in the number of cases that we're seeing per day. And that's what exponential disease spread looks like. It's kind of starts off slow. We saw it early on in the college age population and then slowly um, diffusing out to other age groups. and. Uh, to Intel, we have a, a situation where there are there is just a ton of disease circulating in Wisconsin right now. And I'm sure I'll let Amanda add some thoughts about why that might be. Please, yeah, I mean, my, my assessment of the situation is very similar. You know, essentially, this is an infection that undergoes exponential growth, which means the rate of growth in the number of cases is proportional to the number of cases there are. And, you know, we, we sort of benefited for many months of warm weather, um, sort of, you know, a slow buildup of cases. And, and now, it, you know, because so many um, individuals have become infected, the, and, and this issue of, you know, you being able to spread it to others before you have symptoms yourself, it's just really created a situation heading into the fall uh, that we didn't want to be in. Well, I want to ask yeah. a very scary question. Um, are we now at the point in Wisconsin where can we assume if we leave our homes, we're going to be exposed to someone who is asymptomatic or who has COVID-19? Have we come that far? I would say it's getting harder to assume that if you go out in public that you won't be exposed. Yeah. I would even add to that that I think that um, it's a much safer assumption to to think that, yes, if you go out and you're interacting with other, other people, one of them is going to have COVID-19. Because um, when you assume that, you can take precautions and make decisions that are informed. And, you know, in reality, in all probability, you will encounter someone who has COVID-19. There, there are a lot of people out there in Wisconsin who are asymptomatic carriers and we're going to see, you know, the last few days we had over 7,000 cases diagnosed in a day. I guarantee you next week we'll be looking back on that fondly because we are seeing um, those cases will just keep growing until there's some kind of um, widespread, you know, like policy action uh, to tell people to stop uh, going out without masks, stop gathering in indoor spaces in particular. And we just don't have those that guidance in place. So. Um, yeah, I yes, would, I think it's a safe assumption to say that you will be exposed to someone if you go out without taking thing, precautions. The other thing I was going to say is that our positivity rate is over 30%. And when the positivity rate is that high, it's an indicator that we're not capturing all the cases that are happening out there, you know. And so, um, you know, the, the sheer volume of cases that we are detecting is alarming, but also that the positivity rate as an indicator of sort of the unmeasured 
cases, potentially asymptomatic individuals, you know, um, that are undoubtedly just walking around with COVID-19 right now. Um, how has how has the election of President-elect Biden changed the dynamics of the debate uh, nationally? Uh, are you more hopeful? If so, why? Man, I'll start off by saying that our social media campaign, Dear Pandemic, really strives to be nonpartisan. We stick to the science, you know, in the the science-based information. We, you know, we will be equally likely to um, criticize or to comment on, you know, um, mitigation measures taken regardless of political party. Um, I do think, you know, that it's, um, we need to let the science lead. And so I think we we are glad anytime that is the case. Okay. Any PS and I'll on just that, add, yeah, yeah um, I think one of the challenges that has led to Wisconsin struggling so profoundly to control the, the pandemic is that um, science has not been leading. And, you know, in this state as elsewhere, um, political ideology has sort of taken over what should be a completely partisan free um, scientific conversation about how best to control the pandemic. Uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 does not care at all whether you voted for Biden or Trump and um, wearing a mask works whether you think it does or not. And so, you know, the fact that ideology has really entered this conversation in such a powerful way is what is leading Wisconsin to have so much trouble controlling it. Well, Dr. Malia, you said a few minutes ago that in the next week or two, we will look fondly at 7,000 positives a day. So let's try to find some good news here. The announcement by Pfizer of a vaccine. Now, one of the nerdy girls said she started crying at the announcement of Pfizer, 90%. But let's put that, in, put, put that in, into perspective. How hopeful are you at the announcement by Pfizer, Pfizer and other big pharma that they've made progress with a vaccine, please? Yeah, it is really hopeful news. Um, so the announcement that Pfizer made was that they have preliminary data from a, a phase three vaccine trial. This suggests that um, their vaccine prevents uh, symptomatic COVID in 90% of the people who got it. And that's uh, you know substantially better than um, the placebo. So that's terrific news. There's, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of caveats to that being the solution in the present time, right? Um, first of all, that's not the full study. We don't have the complete data yet and the vaccine has not actually, the trial's not over. And uh, so we're basing this on a press release. And, and so there are still a lot of questions about exactly what that 90% number means. And then, but it, you know, it is really good news. Um, in addition to that, it's going to take a while, even after that vaccine is approved, for it to roll out and become available to the general public. In fact, it'll take probably until sometime in the spring. And so having a press release from Pfizer that they have a vaccine candidate is not the moment to give up. Um, you know, we need to continue with pandemic control measures that are not a vaccine until that vaccine becomes available to the public. And that's quite a few months down the line. And so um, we, we do need to protect ourselves now in the meantime, but yes, it is really kind of the beacon in the storm that there might, you know, there will likely be an effective vaccine on the horizon at some point. What'll be the protocols in terms of who gets a vaccination first? Are first line responders, healthcare workers, 
then the elderly, those with pre-existing pre conditions. So I understand you said it may not be available to most people till the spring. I understand that. But uh, assuming continued good news with vaccine, who will get it first? I think what you laid out is an accurate, you know, um, timeline and prioritization of who will be in line first to probably get the vaccine. Leo, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, it'll be first, it'll be frontline healthcare workers who are first in priority, as well as essential employees, essential service employees like grocery store workers and bus drivers, people who have no choice but to be exposed to a lot of people every day. And um, after that, then you have some other high risk groups who will be next in line, including people who live in um, high density residential settings like nursing homes and prisons. And then um, community dwelling people with uh, older age and, and very high risk comorbid conditions like immuno, um, like uh, people who live with people who are immunosuppressed, perhaps. And then, you know, after that, there will be some some questions about who's the next in line. One thing to note is that this vaccine has not yet been tested in children or pregnant women. And so they're quite they're probably going to be the last eligible to get it because those trials haven't even started yet. And so it'll be available to adults and uh, non-pregnant adults well before it'll be available to kids and pregnant women. Assuming continuing good news on the vaccine front, when Deer Pandemic gets, gets, gets this question, should I be vaccinated? How will you answer? Amanda, you're the editor of the Facebook post. Mm -hmm. How will you answer, ma'am? Uh, the first thing I'll say is go get a flu vaccine right now. So you don't you know, that, that's one thing we can do right now is get that vaccine, reduce the overall burden of flu in the population as we head into winter, and to um, reduce your chances of getting flu and, in, in, you know, God forbid, flu and COVID at the same time, right? And to help remove that burden of hospitalized flu cases that do happen every season from also compounding our already taxed hospital systems in Wisconsin. That's the first thing. And then, yes, um, I think, you know, we will be posting information as it develops about this new, you know, the new vaccines that become available and approved um, and, and sort of um, our recommendations for getting them. Yeah. And then how will you ask those that uh, write into Dear Pandemic saying, I'm one of the 15 to 20% who I won't be vaccinated. Uh, how will you respond to that, Facebook editor? I'll let Malia answer this. She does okay. vaccine hesitancy and herd immunity. And so this is, you know, her, her area of expertise. Oh, thank you. Please, doctor. Yeah, I would say... Um, there are a lot of people out there who have some questions about the, the vaccine. And so, first of all, I would really invite them to come to Dear Pandemic and um, ask us those questions. I, I think that um, from what we know about vaccine hesitancy, those ideas about what is risky about a vaccine are um, very sticky. They, they sort of get into your head and then they're they're a little hard to overcome. And um, I think that's because we evaluate our risks in different ways. When we think about getting a vaccine, we think about the risks of getting a vaccine, but we don't often think about the real risks of not getting the vaccine. And, um, you know, in this case, the, the risks, it, assuming in, in the future there's a vaccine available and it's very effective and it's, it's um, safe in clinical trials, um, 
the risks of not getting that vaccine are high. I mean, we, we're seeing, um, we, we have a pandemic disease that causes uh, hospitalization and death in, at a much higher rate than influenza, which is, you know, the most dangerous disease that we deal with on a regular basis in this country. And so um, I think that one of the things we should think about is how we're, how we're evaluating the risks differently. The other thing to say is that um, so far the vaccine trial, uh, the vaccine trials have been proceeding as, as we expect them to, in spite of all of the kind of political and polarization of the vaccine and the accelerated timeline. I will admit I came into this with some doubts about whether a vaccine could be developed safely on the kind of timeline that we were talking about, but I've been really reassured. Um, the, the approval process and the trial process has been going very well, and I have a lot of confidence that when we get a vaccine approved by the FDA, it will be because the trials have shown that it's safe and effective. And so, um, you know, I think by the time we have a vaccine available to the community, there will have been millions of people who've received it and we'll have a lot of information about its safety. Dr. Malia, I think you worked up a fascinating chart on the Deer Pandemic site on the odds of being hospitalized by age. And uh, Wisconsin is gonna put up that chart because we are an older state and we're becoming older. So well, that's just fascinating that the odds of being hospitalized, well, I looked up the median age in Wisconsin, it's about 40. If you're in the age cohort, 40 to 49, it's one in 36 chances of being hospitalized. That increases to um, one in five for uh, those in the age 70 to 79. So uh, we are showing this chart. Uh, can you tell us the important takeaways from this chart, please? Yeah, these are data that uh, were made available on the Wisconsin D uh, Department of Health Services website about, you know, so these are our observations and um, they're based on the COVID positive tests. So, so this is the odds that if you get a COVID positive test, what are the chances you're going to be hospitalized? And the big takeaways here, as you said, are that varies quite a bit by age and you know, fortunately for everyone, younger people, um, especially kids, are uh, have much less serious outcomes from COVID-19. But the chances of a hospitalization for someone who's my age are not nothing. I mean, one in uh, one in almost 50 uh, people my age are hospitalized when they are get a COVID positive uh, test. And so, you know, I think there's been a ton of focus on just the death rates from COVID-19, but the deaths are not the end of the story here. And right now, the crisis that we're going to be facing in Wisconsin is a limitation on the availability of hospital beds. And so these hospitalization rates are really important for managing the pandemic here locally. Well, I want to respect both your time. So I've just got a few more questions, maybe two or three. One of them, one of you mentioned herd immunity. Now, I'm gonna confess that I don't know much about this concept based on what I've read, I'm just confused. Is herd immunity a possibility, please? I'll say something and then let Malia follow up, but herd immunity is a possibility, but we don't want to get there through natural infection. That would be catastrophic in terms of the number of people that would be infected and hospitalize and die from this infection. We want to get to a place of herd immunity through a vaccine, ideally. Um, and this is something Malia studies, and so I'll let her comment more. Please. 
Yeah, herd immunity is a confusing concept. And it, what it is, is the idea that if you get enough people in the population who are immune to a disease, then when one person gets sick, they're very unlikely to spread it to someone else because they're just not in contact with susceptible people very much, right? Most of the people that they're in contact with are not susceptible. Um, there's been some talk about achieving herd immunity as a public health strategy to stop the pandemic, but that that really is, um, I mean, it's almost a ridiculous concept. Herd immunity through natural infection just means everyone gets infected. That's not a prevention strategy. In fact, that's a disease promotion strategy, right? Um, and as Amanda said, it, it attempting to do that would be um, catastrophic. It would result, I, I did some um, calculations on this and, and I think we could expect at least 10,000 Wisconsinites dead if we were to try and achieve that and uh, many orders of magnitude more in the hospital. And on top of that, I don't even think it would work because we don't think that immunity from having gotten COVID-19 COVID lasts more than a year or two. And so even if you know most of the people in Wisconsin were to get infected and we were willing to accept 10,000 Wisconsinites dead of COVID-19, we would still have people susceptible a year or two down the line. So it, I don't even think it would work if we, even if we wanted to accept the losses. Okay, maybe my next, <laughs> next, next to last question for Amanda. You've done some work in the healthcare disparities by race. What have we learned from COVID-19 in terms of uh, uh, who gets it, who dies from it by race? Uh, the uh, Latinos, the African-Americans, and how do we fix these health disparities in terms of COVID-19? I realize that's a huge question. So thank you for a short answer. <laughs> um, I mean, I think what we've learned is that populations that don't have the same ability to um, uptake some of the measures that we're recommending. So people who are working in essential positions, people that are working in food service, people that don't really have as much control over their being in close contact with other people are going to be are at higher risk of of um, co acquiring COVID-19. You know, we've also observed that people that have um, comorbidities are more likely to suffer adverse complications from COVID-19. And unfortunately, in many places in Milwaukee, uh, and in the state of Wisconsin, you know, we have a legacy of structural racism and discrimination that has contributed to health inequities in the first place that have led to chronic conditions being more common in certain race ethnic groups. We have um, areas of concentrated poverty and sort of um, limited opportunity uh, that have been dictated by those historical processes and have led people to be more vulnerable to becoming exposed and to suffer complications from these infections. And so we need to be mindful of how going into this winter with these surging cases, we are thinking about protecting the people who work in settings where they're likely to be exposed or that are you know, experiencing discrimination in the healthcare setting that has caused them to be reticent to, to um, you know, pursue care. Um, and so this has to be part of our pandemic response to not allow racial inequities in COVID-19 to continue in the state of Wisconsin. And then maybe if just a final question, the governor uh, just as recently as last night in his statewide address asked us to stay at home and limit our holiday gatherings. 
How many people will be at each of your Thanksgiving tables? Amanda. The four other people that I live with, my partner and my three kids and two dogs. Dr. Malia. Yeah, we are in a bubble with my husband's parents. And so it will be the six of us, my husband, my two kids and his two parents. And I really encourage all Wisconsinites to think long and hard about the real risk that they will um, transmit COVID-19 unknowingly and unintentionally, of course, to their loved ones. We're really encouraging people to rethink those Thanksgiving gatherings. That's very important. Okay, let's end it on that note. I want to really thank Dr. Malia Jones of UW-Madison's Applied Population Laboratory, Dr. Amanda Simonick of the uh, Zilber School of Public Health at UW-Milwaukee, and I want to commend Dear Pandemic. It's a very fascinating, important website. Thank you so much for giving your time to Wisconsin Eye. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having us. You bet. Our pleasure. Thank you. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel to gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol. 